Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing? Good, good. Hey, do me a favor. Open your Bibles to Genesis 2 if you have your Bibles uh, with you. And then also, um, we are going to jump later into 1 Corinthians 6. So you might want to put a bookmark there, but we're going to hop between those two texts. Um, before we get going, just want to plug one more time, a vertical men night is tonight at eight at the Spring Lake campus. And if you're um, a man who this is your church home, and um, by man, I mean high school and above, um, you really need to come tonight. We're, uh, again, this year is a lot about reestablishing identity and foundations as a church. And tonight is about kind of a vision or an identity of who are the men of harvest called to be. So you're really going to want to be there for that. And then you're going to get to meet the new pastor and the new leader of the men's ministry, who I'm really excited for you to get to know and meet. So be there or be a loser. Those are your two options uh, for tonight. But again, eight o'clock, Spring Lake, make it happen. I'm looking forward to seeing you there. Um, we are our sixth week now in a series called Christian Worldview. And what we're kind of doing is, is establishing what do Christians believe. And the first five weeks were foundational. It's what, does, uh, the, what do Christians believe about God? What do Christians believe about us? What do Christians believe about sin? What do Christians believe about salvation? And what do Christians believe about the Bible? And we were kind of setting these anchored. These are the major foundational things that in order to be a Christian, you kind of have to be on the same page with these things. And now what we're going to do um, starting this week is we are moving from the foundational, the, the high theological to the practical. All right, so how does being a Christian, how does our worldview world influence everything else in our lives and in the very, very practical and nitty-gritty? And uh, this morning, we are starting this practical segment on the topic of sexuality. What is the Christian worldview in regards to sex and sexuality? And there's a reason that we're starting with this one, and here's why. Here's the big idea this morning. It's this. It's that sexuality is the place where worldviews collide. Sexuality is the primary place today where secular humanism, which we've talked about a lot, the, the worldview of our culture collides with the Bible and with an historic Christian worldview. I don't know if you want to call it a battleground, but what I would say is, is we're the most tensioned today in our world, in our lives, in our culture, around the issue of Christianity and culture comes to the issue of sexuality. And I think that's something that you guys are aware of and you know. And what I'm going to say, just to be honest with you, you're going to feel that tension in the room this morning. Like when I told my friends this week, yeah, I'm preaching on sexuality this weekend at church, they weren't like, oh man, so pumped to hear that. It was like, oh gosh, good luck with that. Have fun, right? There is a tension there that, that I think we all sense and feel. A um, couple things before we dive into this message. I just want to give you a heads up. This week's going to look a little bit different. If you've been a part of our church, you know that we like to open the text up right away um, in the, the, the sermon, and we look at God's Word, we read it, and then we say, all right, what did the author mean when he wrote this? How do we apply it to our lives? Well, we're going to get to the text, but I've got a long introduction before that, because what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to lay out what is the worldview of our culture in regard to sexuality, how does that contrast with a Christian worldview? Um, who's winning that cultural battle? And um, then we're going to open to God's word. So here's what all I'm saying. If like 25 minutes in, I'm not in 1 Corinthians yet, don't freak out. Like I'll get there. I know what I'm doing. We're not going to keep you here till 1.30, I promise. And then here's the other thing I would ask, church. 
Um, give me some grace this morning. Sexuality is a huge topic, and I have a limited amount of time. And I can't answer every question. I can't hit every nuance. I can't even address every topic. I'm trying to fly at 3,000 feet. I think I'm going to be able to answer almost everything that you're wondering as you uh, come in here this morning. But give me some grace. Understand that um, I've got a lot to cover, and I can't cover it all. All right? You with me? Okay. So let's get after it. Let's first talk about secular humanism's sexual ethic. Um, three things that I want you to see about the, the worldview of our culture when it comes to sex and sexuality. Here's the first. Um, radical autonomy and freedom are the highest values when it comes to sex in our culture. This was a um, quote from a speech given by Marty Klein, who's a doctor, and this was given at the American Humanist Association. It says this. It says that sex has no inherent meaning, no inherent goal or purpose. We owe sex nothing. The social norms that govern sexuality, what is sex and what is normal sex and what is sexy, who is eligible for sex, are a product of their unique time and place. Victorian England, 1920s Paris, 1950s Atlanta, etc. They do not reflect some deep truth about the real nature of sex. Here, here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, there is no meaning or value to sex. Sex is just something that you do. There, there, there's no eternal value, there's no meaning to it, and as long as you're not hurting anyone and it's between consenting adults, pretty much anything goes, and nobody has the right to say that there is an accountability or morality when it comes to sex. Any idea of God or sin or self-control in this conversation of sex is just people trying to control you or to oppress you or rob you. Whatever you want, you are autonomous and free, and by the way, you should explore sexuality. You should have experiences. You should figure out what you like through trial and, area, or trial and error. This is an area of your life that you are free and encouraged to run after and explore. Okay, here's a second tenet of secular humanism's view on sexuality. It's this. Um, they divorce the physical from the emotional and spiritual. They divorce the physical from the emotional and spiritual. One of the things you have to remember about secular humanism is they deny the existence of God. So if there is no God, if there is no creator, there is no spiritual realm. So there is no spiritual value or sanctity or purpose of sex. That it is just a, a, a physical thing that you do, nothing more, nothing less. It's a simple physical exercise a author and historian, Mary Eberstadt, in writing about the sexual revolution, said this: "The sexual revolution was to destigmatize, and the or the destigmatization and the demystification of non-marital sex, and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes, so long as those who are involved are consenting adults." And I really love that term, hygienic recreation. See what it's saying? It's all sex is, is it's something that's hygienic. It's something that your body needs on occasion, and, and it's recreational. It's fun. It's no different than flossing your teeth. It's just an activity that you do to keep your body healthy, except it's more fun than flossing your teeth. There's recreation to it. That's all that it is. And this is why we have seen the phenomenon of hookup culture become so popular and widespread in America. There are apps on our phones that we can download that are filled with millions and millions of users 
where the sole purpose of that app is to find other people in your area who you can meet up with for the sole purpose of having sex with them. There's no expectation of any emotional involvement, any relationship after the encounter. It is just to meet up, have sex, no strings attached. We are on our way. So they want to divorce the physical from the emotional and spiritual. It's just a function of the body. Autonomy and freedom are, are, are huge. So it's weird because in one way, our culture wants to minimize sex to just this thing that happens with your body. But on the other hand, it elevates sex to the most important thing in the entire world. The third tenet of secular humanism's view on sex is that your sexual identity is your primary identity. Your sexual identity is your primary identity. We live in a culture that believes that a life without sexual fulfillment is not a life worth living. That sexual fulfillment and sexuality are the foundations of what make a meaningful life. And by the way, we see this everywhere, don't we? We see this in every movie we watch. We see this in every TV show we consume. We see this online. We see this on our phones. We see this in commercials that we watch. It's teaching us this message that if you want to be happy, if you want to have a full life, you need to be sexually attractive, and that means you need to look and act a certain way. We use sex to sell everything from toothbrushes to tires to tacos. Over and over again, communicating the message that your sexuality is what defines you. There is a standard that is put before us by society, a standard of sexuality and beauty, which, by the way, by definition, you can never reach because if we could reach it, we wouldn't have to buy anything anymore. But there's this standard out there of how we should look and how we should act. And, and, and it's like if we don't achieve this, somehow our lives are less than. And this is crushing our souls, and it is devouring our children. And we're going to get more to that in a minute. But this is what the worldview of secular humanism teaches us, and this is the culture that we are growing up in and being discipled by, that this is the view of sexuality. Now, what I want to do right now is I want to contrast that with a historic Christian worldview in regards to sex. And this is the best way I can define that for you. It's this. According to the Christian worldview, sex is designed exclusively for a covenant marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Any sexual expression or activity outside of that context is viewed as sinful. Right? So you can see that this is already very, very different. That according to scripture, according to the historic Christian worldview, that sex is designed for a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. And any expression outside of that is outside of God's design and sin. Well, Cal, what do you mean by a historic Christian worldview? Well, here's what I mean. That this worldview was established in creation itself. It's established from Genesis 2. We're going to see that here in a moment. So it's before the Old Testament law. Then it was spelled out and laid out clearly in the book of Leviticus, in the Old Testament law. This was the agreed upon sexual ethic for the Jewish people during the time of Christ. And this is the foundation that Jesus used when he taught on marriage and sexuality. This is reaffirmed again and clearly laid out in the New Testament by Paul and the other apostles. This was agreed upon with unity by the church fathers and early church. And this has been the overwhelming predominant view of the church for over 2,000 years. 
Right, so anyone that's here that's like, yeah, I'm not sure that that's really what Christians believe that sexuality is. I'm not sure that's what the Bible really says. You're only f- flying in the face of the Old Testament law, what Jesus said, what Paul said, the creation account, 2,000 years of church history. This was not something that was argued about. There was no debate over this in the early church. This was clear and unified acceptance. Okay, and so here's what we see when the worldview when it comes to Christianity, sexual ethic. Here's the first thing. Again, that sex is a gift designed for marriage, and it has a purpose. It's to promote oneness in marriage. Sex is a gift designed for marriage to promote oneness. And this is where we see Genesis 2 come into play. Look at Genesis 2, 24. It says this. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. That phrase, become one flesh, that is the term for having sex, sexuality. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. And what I want us to focus on right here now is the phrase right before becoming one flesh. It says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Okay, now here's what that means. That's not just talking about a physical location. It's not just saying that when you get married, you need to move out of mom and dad's basement. That's not what this passage is talking about. It's saying that in the covenant of marriage, it's just the idea that the goal of marriage is a deep intimacy, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. This idea of holding fast means that the closest person on every possible level is your spouse that there's a lifelong commitment to one another, that you love that person with all of your heart, that you give yourself to them fully, and sex is the physical expression of that love and commitment. The goal of marriage is oneness in every area, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and, and this is what it means, that I am so bound to my wife, Mary, that even when I think about myself and when I think about my life, I don't think about it in just me or my terms. I think about it as our life. I think about it as our family. I think about it as our future. That that the person that I dedicate my life to is my wife and my future and my dreams and my goals and everything I want is tied to that person. You know, it's interesting. Scientists have found that there's a hormone that's released during sex and it's called oxytocin. And it's interesting because scientists have labeled this hormone the bonding hormone. And what they found is is this hormone is released and what it does is it emotionally ties you to the person you're having sex with. And we see that in God's design and in God's creation, he is the one that is in control over these hormones and he is giving that to us to, to bond ourselves both emotionally and spiritually to our husband or wife. Look up on the screen, 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. I want you to follow along with this. It says this. It says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do you see how different Paul's view of sex is compared to our culture? Like our culture views sex so selfishly, right? It's all about us. 
It's all about our sexuality and our preferences and what we want and what we think will provide satisfaction and fulfillment. What Paul's saying is, no, 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 that sex is actually a gift that you give to your spouse. That you're not in control of your own body. You don't have authority over it, but your spouse does. And you have authority over your spouse. And when you love and serve and give each other to yourselves, that that sex is a gift that you give each other. Paul's saying that sex ultimately isn't even about us. It's about how we love and serve our spouse. Completely different. Okay, and here's the second thing that I need to, to show you. It's that this is that the result of God's design is intimacy, joy, safety, and flourishing. That God has created sexuality as a good gift to us. And that when we use it in God's design, the results are good because God knows best. According to a Christian worldview, a marriage that honors the Lord, a husband and wife give them to one another fully, commit to one another, love one another unconditionally, serve one another sacrificially, are quick to forgive and show grace, and are partners and best friends in all things. This creates the intimacy, joy, safety, and flourishing that our hearts desire. You know, it's interesting at the end of Genesis 4, there's kind of a comment made. It says that both Adam and Eve, that, that they were naked and they were not ashamed. And even that is a beautiful statement because what it's saying is, is that the husband and wife, they were fully exposed to one another, yet they loved each other so perfectly that neither were ashamed. And what God is saying is that ultimately our marriage is a picture of the gospel, that just like we are fully known and fully loved by God, that God sees all of the sin in our hearts. He sees the things we don't show anyone else, and yet he engages with us and loves us and forgives us and walks with us, that our spouses in marriage, that we would fully know, be fully exposed between one another, but not have shame because our love for each other is so deep. This is God's design. And here's what I want to remind you of and what I want to convince you of. You see, it's really, really interesting. I'm going to argue till my deathbed that our culture, they want to remove themselves from the authority of God, but they want all of the blessings that following God promises. Does that make sense? Like, think about it. Think about every romantic comedy you've ever seen. Think about every love story that you've read. How does the story end? Right? There's a lot of chaos and there's a lot of conflict, but eventually miss, you, know, you meet Mr. or Mrs. Right, Mr. or Mrs. Perfect, and, and the movie always ends that they're at the altar and they're getting married and they live happily ever after. That, that's the goal, that you find that person that loves you, that, 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 that fulfills you, and, and you're going to be with that person, you're going to be best friends, you're, you're going to do life together, you're going to love, you're going to serve, you're going to give to each other, and it's like, man, that sounds exactly like how God designed marriage to be. We want the good things that God offers, but we want to remove him from the authority, we want to do it our way. Or maybe a better way to say it is, is we want the kingdom of God without having to honor the king. Culture is dying for the good things of God. We're just going about it the wrong way. Okay, and here's the third thing I need you to see. It's that secular humanism has won the culture war. Secular humanism, the worldview of our culture in regards to sex and sexuality has won. And church, here's the truth. It's not even a fight anymore. There is no moral majority. Secular humanism has won, and it's won convincingly. 
right now in our culture to hold a biblical worldview on marriage and sexuality. And by the way, again, let me remind you the same thing we have believed for 2,000 years. We haven't changed, we haven't moved, but to believe these things about sex and marriage and sexuality, we will be called things like repressive. We will be called things like out of touch with reality. We will be called backwards. We will be called bigoted and hateful. We'll be called hypocrites. We will be called what everything that is wrong with society. An article in USA Today on the issue of sexuality in the church said this. It said, it's difficult to watch good people and the churches are full of them, buy into this sincere but misguided notion that being a faithful Christian means accepting everything the Bible teaches. Right? We are seen as sincere, kind, nice enough people, but basically idiots and misguided for believing that the Bible is actually God's word, and even today we are called to live under its authority. So the question is, church, we live at the conversion of these two worldviews, Secular humanism has won the culture war. How do we respond? What do we do? How has that impacted the church? And uh, what I'm going to argue right now is a hard pill to swallow, but I'm going to argue that the data overwhelmingly supports the fact that Christians have embraced the secular humanist position. That on the issue of sexuality and God's design, we have punted and we've embraced what our culture has discipled us to believe. A survey done by Pew Research in 2020 found that 53% of Christians believe that casual sex, meaning sex outside of marriage between consenting adults, is okay some of the time or all of the time. Okay, so like that's a really wild statistic for me to read because if we are an accurate reflection of Christianity in America, that means I'm preaching to a room where over half of you don't even believe the historic Christian worldview when it comes to sex and would say you don't buy it. A survey done by the Institute of Family Studies in 2019 found that 74% of non-married evangelical young adults between the ages of 18 and 22 had reported to having sex. A survey done by CNN in 2012 found that there is almost no distinguishable difference between all of the sexual activity of Christians and non-Christians. The only thing that's very different is Christians just feel more guilty about it. But what the data shows, and this is not all of it, there's a lot more, I don't have time to, to lay it all out, but what the statistics show us is that half of the church would openly say they don't ascribe to a Christian worldview on the issue of sex, and 75 to 80% of unmarried Christians are living outside of God's design, not trusting him in the area of sexuality. We have lost this culture war, we have punted on this Okay, and then here's the second thing, and, and by the way, I never do this, but in my notes on the screen, this is in all caps because this is so important that we understand and what I'm going to try to convince you of right now. Here's what you need to see. Secular humanism isn't working. We are living in a failed system, in a failed worldview. It is not working. The worldview that our culture is selling us that says if we place ourselves in the center and if we remove God and we place what we believe and what we want and what we think is best as the highest level of authority, that that will provide joy and peace and satisfaction. It's lying, it's not true, and it's failing us. Here's a lot of statistics that will help make this clear. Let's talk about hookup culture first, right? Hey, just go explore sexuality. It's only a physical thing. Hook up with whoever you want. Um, 
In 2020, according to NPR, 61% of Americans described themselves as lonely. And by the way, that was pre-COVID shutdown, so I can't imagine those numbers are better today. But in a culture that says you have freedom and autonomy to do whatever, we are finding ourselves more lonely than we've ever been, that that was up 13% from just two years ago. The casual sex is associated with psychological distress, including anxiety and depression, as well as low self-esteem and reduced life satisfaction. A report that Grand Valley State did with 200 college students said that 78% of female participants and 72% of male participants reported regret about their most recent hookup encounter. So we're engaged in it, we're involved in it, but we regret it, we don't even like doing it, and it's making us more lonely, depressed, and anxious. Joanna Coles said this, says, getting naked and having sex with strangers is hard. We portray it as fun and we pretend it's fun, but people crave intimacy, which is not easy to create in a hookup. That is why Britain has just appointed a loneliness minister. Right? Like how jacked up do things have to be in Britain to have a loneliness minister, right? Like I don't think that's fixing anything probably, but that what she's saying is, is even governments are recognizing we have a loneliness crisis in our culture, and it's tied to the brokenness of our sexuality. All right, let's talk about pornography next, right? With the... Um, growth of the sexual revolution, and sex is just a physical thing. The pornography industry has exploded, and right now online, the most thing searched on the internet every single day is pornography. We live in a culture that is dominated by pornography in many ways. Here's what it's doing. Pornography is a significant factor in loneliness and lack of intimacy across the board. Couples where one or more partners routinely watch pornography are more than two times more likely to get divorced. It's destroying our marriages. Porn's effects on adolescent boys, it erodes their ability to have normal relationships. It leads to increased feelings of shame, leads to isolation, and is the leading factor in sexual addiction. And by the way, that's not from a Christian source, that's from psychology today. All right, let's have more fun. Let's talk about fatherlessness, right? One of, again, one of the things with the sexual revolution is that let's tear down the Christian beliefs and worldview regarding marriage. And, and there are more and more and more children happening out of wedlock as more and more people are having sex outside of marriage, which means that more and more children are growing up in single family homes. Usually that means that they're being raised by their mom and the dad is a wall. Okay, let's see what that's doing to our children. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. That's five times the average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes, 32 times the average. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. That's 20 times the average. 80% of rapists with anger problems specifically come from fatherless homes, 14 times the average. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes, nine times the average. 75% of adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. It's almost like God designed sex and marriage not just as a way for a husband and a wife to flourish, but as a protection for children, huh? And as we have abandoned God's design for marriage and sexuality, it's our children that are paying the steepest price. All right, let's look at statistics on body image and social media. This blew my mind. In 1973, only 23% of women and 15% of men expressed body dissatisfaction. 
Like I can't even fathom what that would, a culture would be like where it was, those numbers were that low. In 1997, 56% of women and 43% of men disliked their appearance as a whole. And by 2018, 83% of women and 75% of men were dissatisfied with their bodies. Do you see that drastic change? This is a crazy uh, quote to me. It says, 32% of teen girls said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse, right? Because all social media is is a comparison game. Here's what's crazy about that statistic is that it came from Facebook, who owns Instagram. This just came out just a couple weeks ago in a, a leaked um, document to the Wall Street Journal where it basically says the founders of these tech companies know that social media, that these things are toxic for our adolescent girls and boys, and they don't care because it's making them money. Church, listen. And by the way, I, you don't have to hear this from me. Most of you already see this and feel this. But we as a society are more lonely, more depressed, more anxious, more dissatisfied with our lives and bodies, and more hopeless than we have ever been. Our culture has bought into a worldview that has sold them. If you place yourself at the center of the universe and reject God's authority and design for your life, you will be happy and free, and it's not working. So the question is, is why? Why is secular humanism failing us? And I think there's a very clear and logical reason why we are finding ourselves in this place. And, and let me walk you through it. Because here's the thing, again, secular humanism denies the existence of God. And when you deny the existence of God, you lose the creator, right? So we are not here because we are created by God. We are here because of evolution, because of a big bang, by random chance, there is no creator. And when you lose creator, you lose design. If there's no one to design anything, there is no design to life. When you lose design, you lose purpose, right? If there's no design, life has no meaning. There is no purpose. We just live and experience life, and then we're gone. When there is no purpose, there is no accountability. And when there's no accountability, there's no fear of God. If God isn't real, if I don't give an account to how I live my life, I don't have to be scared of God. I can do whatever I want. No one can tell me what to do. But here's the problem. When you lose the fear of God, you lose wisdom. Because Proverbs says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, that the starting point for any wisdom in life is the fear of God. And when you lose wisdom, all you are left with is confusion and pain. Like, like let me play this out. We, as a society, are in a deep, deep state of confusion and here's what I mean. Here's just one example. We are so confused, we don't even know if biology even matters at all anymore. Like we as a society, we can't figure it out. And I'm not talking about my views. I'm talking about our culture as a whole. Like here's what I mean. Does biology matter when it comes to gender? Well, our society says no, it, it, it doesn't, right? Like if a man identifies as a female, the biology is a lesser truth to what they identify as. We had a guy in our church talking to us about this, and the way he said it was is what's in your mind and what's in your body are two separate things. That when it comes to gender, biology is a secondary truth. Okay, so here's the question. Is that true when it comes to race and ethnicity? Like are we as a society comfortable if I identify as indigenous? Or as a black man? Like, is that accepted? Like, I don't think so. I think when it comes to that, we're not sure. But we're like, biology probably does matter. Like, if I identify from the Sioux tribe, I don't think I'm getting any casino royalty checks anytime soon, right? That's not how that works. So it doesn't matter with gender. We think it probably matters with race and ethnicity. Does it matter with age? 
Like, are we comfortable if a 60-year-old man identifies himself as a 14-year-old and dates another 14-year-old? No, we're not okay with that. That's actually illegal. That, that man would go to jail. Are you comfortable if my six-year-old son Judah identifies as a 16-year-old and gets his driver's license? Like, I would hope not, right? Like, that would be a disaster. But here's what I'm saying. We're at such a deep state of confusion, we don't even know. Because, like, by the way, how can you argue for one and not the other? We can't logically do it. We're just confused on what biology even means anymore. And when there's no central standard or anchor of truth, all we are left with is chaos and confusion. And church, look at me. This is what's heartbreaking. It's that we are supposed to be the hope of the world. That God called us to be the hope of the world. And in this darkness and confusion and pain and suffering, we are the ones that were supposed to be the light. That we were the ones that were supposed to be like, no, no, we are God's people who have committed ourselves to God's design and God's way. And listen, there is a better path for sex and sexuality than what the world is selling you. And look at the love and fruitfulness of our lives. And we would be inviting people in to God's perfect design. But by the way, we don't get to do that because we've punted on this. That we've abandoned God's calling and God's design to be the hope in the world. And we've chosen to be formed, discipled, and hold on to the spirit of the age. We've lost such an incredible opportunity. So here's the question. What do we do now? Well, I think we have to answer a very, very important question today. And I think this is the central question that will determine the trajectory of our lives. It's this. Who do we belong to? In the Christian worldview, there's a fundamental question that we have to answer. It's who do we belong to? Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Paul is writing real quick to a church that is in a culture full of sexual brokenness. In Corinth, there was a temple to the goddess of Athena. And the way that they would worship in Corinth is you would go to the temple and you would have sex with temple prostitutes. It was a very, very sexual broken culture, and this was a young, immature church that it was full of sexual sin and really struggling. And here's what Paul writes to him. He says this. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. And do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall then I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Okay, what Paul is doing here is, is he is reminding a young church that is followers of Christ that God's Spirit literally dwells inside of each and every one of us, that our bodies are not our own, that we have been purchased. And by the way, we were purchased with the most prized possession in the history of the universe, the blood of Christ himself, that he dwells in us, that we are his temple, that we are not our own. You know, it's another thing that's interesting in this text. He kind of 
cuts down a lie I think a lot of Christians believe. Um, one of the things Christians believe is that all sin is the same. Right? Have you ever heard that before? Yeah, all, all sin is the same, right? It's, it's all the same. So whether you, you know, cut in line or you murder someone, all, all, all sin is the same. Um, you know that's not true, right? Like, like, here's what I think that people are trying to mean when they say that. All sin makes us equally guilty before a perfect and holy God. All sin makes us equally in desperate need of Christ's work on our behalf. But how sin affects our lives, it's not all the same. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality, for every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What he's saying here is that God has created sex to unite two people into one. And when we go outside of God's design, we are uniting ourselves, we are uniting our bodies, and by the way, the, the, the temple that Christ dwells in with sin itself and the consequences of sexual sin are, are way, way, way more violent to our spirits and to our emotions. Paul is saying that we belong to God, we are accountable to God, and this idea that we are autonomous and free to do whatever we want with our bodies is not based in reality. Who do you belong to? Or maybe here's a better way to ask it. Where's your starting point when you think and talk about sex? Like, here's the thing. I have friends who disagree with me on this issue. They're like, Cal, you're crazy for holding to this old biblical worldview of sexuality. But here's what's interesting. When I joke with them or argue with them or talk with them about this topic, they always start from the same place. It always goes like this. Well, I just really think that if two people love each other, well, I just really feel that, that you don't necessarily need to wait to marriage if that's where you know you're headed anyways. Well, I, I just can't understand how God could make it this way. It's like even in how they're talking about it, what it's showing is, is they bought into the secular humanist worldview where we're at the center. Right? If God's the creator, if he's the designer, why are we the ones that get to say what we think and what we feel is the standard by which God should be judged? You understand what I mean? Like, like where do we start? Do we start with us? Or do we start with, man, what did God create? How has God designed it? He has proven himself to be good and faithful and kind and loving. We're called to submit ourselves to him. Okay, so as I wrap up, I want to take a moment and make a quick turn and talk about, so what does this mean for us today? And there's some really important things that we need to do with this topic right now. Here's the first. And church, I want you to hear me. We need to embrace the gospel when it comes to sexuality. We have to embrace the good news of Jesus Christ. Look up at verse 9 in 1 Corinthians 6. It says this, it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But look at verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. I love this text, and if you take notes in your Bible, I would encourage you just underline that phrase, and such were some of you. Because you see what that's saying? It's saying that, listen, we are not saved because we got things right. We aren't saved because we are righteous. Or maybe make it more clear. Church, God doesn't love us because our past sexual history is perfect and clean. 
that most of us, if not all of us, come into this place with sexual brokenness in our past and we have to embrace the gospel that we are yet still forgiven, known, loved, empowered, sanctified, and washed by Christ. We are saved because of what Christ has done in our place. And here's what I mean. One of the things about sexual sin is that it carries such deep levels of shame. And so what we have to do is, is we have to believe the gospel that Jesus didn't just pay the penalty for our sin, but he bore our shame. That we offload that sin and shame onto Christ and we understand that we are empowered by his spirit and we stand before God as clean, covered in Christ's righteousness. And, and look here, here's why this is so important, because our children need us. Here's what I mean. I've been a youth pastor for a very, very long time, and what I found is overwhelmingly Christian parents do not talk to their kids about sex or sexuality. They just don't have the conversation, and here's why. Because when you get down to the root of it, the parents are still dealing with guilt and shame over their past sexual history and the decisions they made. And they say, well, man, I didn't do it perfect, and there's sin in my past, and I feel like that if I tell my kids to honor the Lord with their sexuality when I didn't, I feel like that makes me a hypocrite. And I'm like, it doesn't make you a hypocrite, it just makes you a good parent. You have to embrace the gospel and say, yeah, you know what, I didn't honor the Lord in these things, but I've repented of that. And by the way, there's some of you in this room right now that the first step has to be repentance over the decisions you're making even right now. But when you can look at your kids and say, no, I repented of that and, and, and I have aligned myself with God's design and God is good and he is trustworthy and he is faithful and he wants the best for you, so honor the Lord and trust him with your sexuality. Like what makes you a hypocrite is when you say you believe a salvation and a gospel that says that we are forgiven and we are not defined by our failures, yet we continue to sit on, our, on the sidelines and on the bench because our shame and failures are defining us while the culture is devouring our children. We need to embrace the gospel. Here's the second thing. We need to prepare for the reality of suffering. We need to prepare for the reality of suffering. Church, look at me. I'm not dumb. I understand in 2021, in our cultural climate, this is a message that gets me canceled. Right? And by the way, this is another talk for, for another time, but is there anything more antithetical to the gospel than a cancel culture? Like, I would so rather align myself with Jesus Christ who sees me at my worst and engages and loves and forgives and saves and changes than a culture that says, no, you're going to be defined by your worst moment and we're going to cast you out. Just another area where secular humanism is just absolutely failing us. But here's what I know. And I tell our young pastors this all the time. I say, it doesn't matter how cool you are. It doesn't matter how articulately you can defend your position. It doesn't matter how well we love and engage with people who disagree with us. To hold to a biblical sexual ethic will put us in the same category as racists. We will be seen as bigots. We will be seen as hated. Like, listen, even a video of this sermon would probably disqualify me from ever running for any type of office ever, right? Praise Jesus. I'm so happy about that. <laughs> I get it. So what do we do? We count the costs, don't we? Like Jesus tells his disciples, the world is going to hate you just as they hated me. And there are many people 
who have punted on the Christian worldview of sexuality because they're so terrified of being hated by the very culture that Jesus promises them will hate them anyways. It says that to those who are being saved that we are the aroma of life and to those who are perishing we're the aroma of death. So we understand, listen, I understand that part of my job as a pastor at this church is to prepare us to suffer. If we think that God has called us to know suffering, we haven't paid a lot of attention to the people in the Bible who followed Jesus. It's okay. We don't need to live out of fear. What we are called to do is called to count the cost, be faithful to God and his word. Okay, and here's the third thing, and I need to close with this. We're called to follow the example of Jesus. We're called to follow the example of Jesus. And I want to get very, very specific here. Um, Think about how Jesus started his ministry. Do you remember what he did when he first began? In Matthew 5, it says that Jesus goes up onto a mountain. Hang with me. I know Pastor Chris is here and he's playing the piano. Don't let that distract you. When Jesus started his ministry, he goes onto a mountain and he preaches his most famous message. And guess what Jesus does? Jesus raises God's standard of holiness and the moral bar higher than anyone in Scripture. Nobody had a higher view of morality anywhere in Scripture than Jesus did. And remember this in Matthew 5, he's like, you think that it's a sin to commit adultery. I say to you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. He's taking God's law and he's raising it. He says, you think it's wrong to murder. I say, if you hold hatred in your heart to your brother, you've already committed murder. He's taking God's law and he raises it. He raises the bar. Okay, then what does Jesus do? He comes down off the mountain. And so you would expect him to be a Pharisee, right? To hold his nose up, to look down at everyone and say, man, you've got to meet my standard. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he becomes the most compassionate person this world has ever known. And he engages with sinners and he loves sinners. And he surrounds himself with people that the rest of society didn't think was worth hanging out with. In fact, the Pharisees, when they were making accusations against Jesus, they said, well, he is a drunkard. And he's a partier because those are the people that he hangs out with. So he has to be engaging in those things. Jesus was at the same time, listen to this, at the same time he held the highest standard of morality and he was the most compassionate person in the world. And that's who we're called to be. Because you see, here's the thing, there's a pendulum, right? Some people are all truth with no grace. Right? And they love to talk about God's standard. They love to talk about the Bible, but they do it in a way where they're angry and they're hateful and they're looking down on everyone. Church, look at me. I need you to hear this. If your theology, if the result of your theology is that you hate people and you look down on them, your theology is not from God. You have bought into a demonic theology that is filled with pride because that's not how Jesus treated people. Jesus never facilitated sin. Jesus was never afraid to address the sin in people's lives, but he loved them and engaged with them and cared for them and showed them what it meant to truly know and love God, right? So one pendulum is, is all truth, no grace. The other is all grace and love and no truth. And by the way, um, that's a false theology too because it's hypocrisy, right? We have this saying at Harvest that truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. And if you just, well, I'm just going to love and I'm just going to be the hands and feet of Jesus and I'm never going to address anything and I'm never going to have the courage to call sin, sin, that that's actually also motivated by selfishness and just a fear 
of man. We're called to be like Jesus, and that means we have to find that middle point where we hold the line of God's standard without apology, but we also are the most compassionate and loving people in our communities. Like, here's what I mean. Like, I hope for my boy, Matt Varley, like, I hope there's people in your life that are like, man, I don't agree with Matt coming to church. I don't agree with what he believes at all, but oh my goodness, is that guy nice? And he's kind to me, and he's encouraging, and he's helpful, and he wants to talk to me, and he cares about me, and, and, and he loves me. And I don't believe what he believes, man, but, but man, does, does that guy really care for me? Like, that's what the example of Jesus is. This isn't something where we just sit in our castle and look down on everyone. We're called to be uncompromising in our faith and the most loving people in our neighborhoods, workplaces, and schools. And it's a very, very hard balance to walk, and we need the Lord's help, and we need each other if we're going to do that well. Amen? All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, this morning. I thank you for your word. Um, God, I'm thankful for your design. God, I even think just about the fact that you didn't owe us to create a plan for marriage and sexuality that would result in our flourishing and enjoy in peace and safety. You didn't owe us that, but it's just a cool picture of your love and kindness and care for us. And God, I just would ask um, that your spirit would press in on people powerfully right now. And if there's some in here who need to change how they're thinking or change how they're living or repent of buying into a worldview that is ultimately just creating pain and sorrow, God, I just pray that your spirit would weigh on them, that you would make that clear. I pray that this would be a place of healing. I pray that this would be a place of love, that this would not be a place for perfect people, but this would be a place where hurting people find perfect love and hope. We love you. We need you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.